You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. On today's episode, I speak with Jimmy Chen, who's founder and CEO of Propel. Prior to Propel, Jimmy led product teams at LinkedIn and Facebook and studied symbolic systems at Stanford University. I'll let him tell you about Propel in his own words. Propel builds the Providers app, which is a free app that helps low-income families to manage their benefits and money. Providers is used by more than 5 million families across the country each month. There are about 20 million families who get SNAP benefits in the United States, so we're about a quarter of all SNAP households in the United States are monthly active users of the Providers app. On providers, people can do a number of things besides just check their balances and manage their SNAP benefits. They can do things like save money on groceries, get cheaper home internet, or save on the utilities bill. We also help our users apply for jobs. So over 300,000 people applied for jobs on providers last year. And we also offer a debit card and a checking account that helps our users get cash payments from governments or from employers via direct deposit onto a debit card that doesn't have a monthly fee, doesn't charge overdraft fees, has a virtual card, and so on. Um, Because of these kind of auxiliary features, the Providers app, the average user of Providers opens it about 17 times per month. And that makes us one of the top apps on the App Store and the on the Google Play Store. Propel is the company that builds the Providers app. Propel has raised about $80 million in venture capital funding for really mission-aligned investors who believe in what we're building and the long-term future of it. Uh, the company itself is about 70 people now. We're based in Brooklyn, but we have a number of teammates joining us from different parts of the country. And we offer a, a remote work setup and as well as regional hubs in Los Angeles and San Francisco. Jimmy, thanks so much for coming on. Let's jump right in. I'm curious, why is not more technology being built for low-income folks? Hey, Miles, thanks for having me here today. Super excited to have this conversation about a topic I care so deeply about. More technology isn't built for low-income folks because people solve the problems they understand. And by and large, the people who solve technology problems in our country are people who come from middle to higher income uh, backgrounds. And as a result, a lot of the technology that gets built today helps people that are already comfortable feel more comfortable, right? Solve sort of first world problems. There's nothing wrong with building technology for middle to higher income people. I think there's nothing like inherently bad or immoral about it, but I do think it misses a big opportunity to build software for people that may be struggling financially, who may be low income, and that that is both an impact opportunity because the software can make a big difference in their lives and a business opportunity to better serve them. So say more about that market opportunity to serve people who don't have a lot of money to pay you. I think the opportunity is that many low income Americans on a day-to-day basis, navigate services that are that are pretty tough to use, that are pretty disrespectful in some ways, that are really expensive in other ways in terms of fees and upfront costs, and that offering a better alternative that uses modern technology can pretty straightforwardly be 10x or 100x better than the status quo. And I think when you look at startups, you know, in general, oftentimes startups are looking for something that is painkiller and not a vitamin and something that is 10x better than the status quo. These are like these startup themes about how you find a problem you should work on. Well, an easy way to do that is to look at the challenges faced day to day by low income families, because many of the problems that they face are serious, serious problems that they will go to great lengths to fix and that you can beat the status quo. You can be 10x better 
by just doing things like applying modern software best practices. So you're saying it's easy to build a better solution, but if customers have less money to give you, that means perhaps you have to find ways to meet them, acquire customers at a lower cost. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I think the challenge for companies like Propel and anyone else who wants to serve low-income Americans and do it in a mission-driven way is how do you leave people better off after using your software? Uh, whether or not you charge them directly. So at Propel, we don't charge our users directly. Our business model involves charging third parties who work with us. The reality is like, I think there's a lot of responsibility incumbent on technology companies who serve low-income folks to think really critically about are you leaving people better off than when they found you? And how do you know if you are? There are lots of ways to measure it. And I think it is fundamentally like a quantitative question. So our first investor was the Financial Health Network and we're huge proponents of their work. They've done a ton of work around popularizing the financial health score different ways to measure financial health and the impact that you're having on someone's finances. The idea that in the same way that your physical health isn't just your weight, your financial health isn't just the number of dollars you have in your checking account. It's also a number of other factors, including your credit score and your insurance coverage, how much you worry about your finances and so on. That's really how we think about measurement for these things is that's the ultimate metric. If we could get to be able to measure these different aspects of financial health and see whether or not our product is actually helping to improve those things, that's a measure of success for us. And you use the term disrespectful. What makes a product respectful? Let me answer that with an example. So when I started Propel, I moved to Brooklyn in 2014 to do a fellowship called Blue Ridge Labs. And I know that you've had Hannah Calhoun on the show. She's an amazing ally and, and, and one of the creators of Blue Ridge Labs. Um, it was really through that program that I spent a lot of time talking to low-income Americans in New York City about their experiences in all walks of life. One of the things that I started learning about was their usage of safety net services, things like the food stamp program, which is officially known as SNAP, and found out that everyone who gets SNAP benefits gets them on an EBT card, which is a debit card that your state government issues, and that everyone who has an EBT card needs to check their balance to know how much money is left on the card. The most common way to check your balance is calling the 1-800 number on the back. That's actually the insight that sparked the creation of Propel, this idea that that's, uh, that's a strange way to check your balance, right? The, if you have a bank account at a major consumer bank, you don't have to call the bank to check your balance or to get your transaction history. There's probably a free mobile app that lets you do those things. Asking the question like, why didn't that exist for the food stamp program? I think was sort of the genesis of Propel. And to answer your question about respect, I think it was a lot of like, are we offering people who are lower income or from a different socioeconomic class, the same conveniences, the same affordances, as people who are higher income, and that people can feel when they use software tools, whether or not they're being respected, whether or not their time is respected, whether or not their mental space is respected. And that's really what we strive for at Propel, is to give our users a really high level of respect and customer service that's consistent with what people are seeing throughout FinTech. Thank you for sharing that story. When you started with that initial insight on the balance check via mobile for a snap consumer. That sounds to me a little bit like a feature rather than a business. Can you talk about how that evolved? Yeah, it totally was a feature in that it was solving a very specific pain point that people had, but it wasn't, I would say on its own, a platform or a business. It certainly didn't generate any revenue for us. We learned pretty quickly that checking your EBT balance is really just an acquisition. It's a wedge to get onto the platform and a way to build a relationship to a customer. And once we had built that relationship, so we started off literally just building an app to help people to check their EBT balance and just showed you your balance and a big number at the top, your transaction history at the bottom. And that's all we did. We started talking to people who are using the app about what are the other things you'd like to see in this app? What are the other challenges that you're facing at the same time as you're thinking about your EBT balance? And we started to get led into things like, well, I'd like a map 
of stores where I can spend my EBT benefits. We started to get led into things like, you know, I would love to be able to save money on groceries. Like, what can I do to save money on groceries? But I'd say the biggest thing that we were sort of led into from talking to people who are using the app is actually EBT is just one part of my financial life. And it's part of this much bigger financial challenge that I have of consistently making it through the month every month. That's really the ultimate thing that I strive for that stresses me out that all of this like money and benefits and government services stuff, all that ladders up into, can I make it through the month every month, keep a sense of pride and provide for my family? I mean, so we started to think about what are the things that we can do to the providers app, which is the name of the app that we use that started off helping people manage their EBT balances, but has since evolved, to help them to make it through the month every month. The answer to that is that we need to help people manage not just their benefits, but also their financial assets, also their bank accounts. So last year, we launched a checking account and a debit card specifically focused on low-income Americans who use safety net services with the idea of trying to present a cohesive financial picture that helps low-income families make it through the month every month. You started with an acquisition hook, and now you're layering on other solutions that help your customer based on the trust you've built and provide you with additional revenue streams. Yeah, that's right. So let's talk about those revenue streams. Advertising. You have these third parties who are making offers to your customers. How do you operationalize choosing advertisers that are aligned with your values? You know, the way we think about this is by extending the time horizon on which we're making the decision. So we are fortunate to have really fantastic investors who believe in Propel's mission and our business in the long term and that don't push us to show crazy short-term results. I think that actually pushes a healthy dynamic for us where we're thinking about the long term of we're trying to build a 10-year business that can serve tens of millions of Americans at scale. And for us to do that, we really can't cut corners. We can't be showing shoddy content to our users. We can't be showing content that hurts our users' financial health from parties like you know payday lenders or from you know any organization that doesn't have the financial best interest of our users at heart. And so the way that we end up screening our offers to make sure it's consistent with that long-term vision is we manually source every piece of content inside the app. We don't do programmatic advertising from exchanges. We really have like we have an Propel employee who is in charge of sort of finding and creating the content, generating the content and uh, creating the copy and the design of it. And that we only work with partners that help our users improve their financial health. It means a different thing in each industry. But one of the simplest ways to think about it is, is this thing going to help you save money or make money? And can we quantify the ways in which it helps you save money or make money? And if so, that's a pretty straightforward argument. This is something that could help your financial health. So some of the biggest customers on the platform are offering cheaper home internet or free cell phones. They're offering things like coupons for online shopping at a variety of different merchants. We also work with a variety of employers. So we work with on-demand and shift employers. We work with seasonal employers. We work with full-time employers to help our users apply for different work in their industry. Those sound like great offers. Now, your second revenue stream, I'm imagining, is around this neobank or debit card offer perhaps interchange and related. How do you think about that? Yeah, that's right. So just to back up a little bit, Propel makes money in two ways. The first is through the lead gen business that I just mentioned, helping these third-party companies that help our users save money and make money to connect to our users. That's number one. We're usually paid on a lead gen fee in that case. So when somebody applies for a job, we get a fee from the employer. When someone signs up for cheaper home internet, we get a fee from the internet a service company and so on and so forth. On the debit side, we operate a debit card ourselves, and it is pretty similar to a consumer neobank that you'd see as a standalone product, except ours is integrated into the overall app. And, and we make money similar to other, other fintech companies that offer similar products. So we make interchange primarily off of the transactions on the debit card. I like interchange for the demographic that we serve and for this particular model because it aligns our interests. Put very simply, 
if our users have more money and they're able to spend that money, then Propel generates more revenue. And so we're incentivized to help our users get more money. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> I like it. Now, you announced recently a monster fundraise with some big names involved. What was the vision that they were buying into that may have been different from your early days when you struggled to raise capital? I believe that there is an institution missing in this country. The institution is something similar to AARP, what they do for seniors, but for low-income families. So to step back a little bit, if you look at the way that the government-funded safety net works in the United States, there are really three constituents that are well-served. There are seniors, there are veterans, and there are low-income families. And if you think about those three groups, you know, you've got the AARP, this big national nonprofit focused on seniors. You've got USAA, a Fortune 100 company that offers financial services really focused on veterans and their families. But there's a conspicuous lack of an organization that's squarely focused on low-income families, on those who use safety net services and, and navigate these government programs, that offers them financial services, but also wraparound products that focus really cohesively on their identity in that group, on sort of who they are and their very specific financial needs. And so similar to USAA and AARP, we think there's an opportunity for a massive organization to really help not just solve a single problem that this uh, demographic has, but to really solve a variety of problems by building a suite of products that focus on the financial health of low-income families. That's what we're trying to build and that's what we believe our 10-year mission. And that does sound like a vision big enough to raise a lot of VC money for. Did you have that vision early on? I had versions of that vision. I think the starting point for that vision, like if you think about it from a bottoms-up perspective, and, and that is how I've thought about it. Like I, I did not come at that vision by like looking at the market or reading white papers or talking to investors about it. I came at it from sort of years of working bottoms-up on things that escalate into that. The vision that I started off with Propel first was we want to make the safety net more user-friendly. That's the real pain point that consumers feel is that there's like a lack of good world-class UX at the front of the funnel or in the process of using safety net services. And so I really spent the first few years of the company really focused on user experience of the safety net from like a software uh, ones and zeros perspective of like, what's the user experience? How do we make things work better on mobile? How do we simplify forms? All that kind of stuff. But as we started talking to people who are using our products and who are benefiting from them, we started to think more expansively about what is the safety net ladder up into? Why do people care about the safety net? Why is it important to get food stamp benefits or other benefits that you might qualify for and to manage those? Well, it's really about making ends meet. It's about providing for your family. It's about making it through each month and hopefully being able to take steps forward in your financial life. And so it's really from sort of that bottoms down or sorry, the, the kind of starting from the bottom, uh, like the very tactical part of things that we've slowly had the chance to learn from our users about what it is that they're really aspiring for. And that's what's allowed us to paint this much bigger, grander vision about what the company can become. Well, thanks for sharing that vision. You're in a challenging part of the marketplace because you've got the government as a supplier and maybe a customer and definitely a very critical component of this. How do you manage your relationship with 50 different states? Yeah, it's a big part of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. So the food stamp program is federally funded, but state administered. And so we integrate with every state government to help people navigate their EBT cards and their SNAP benefits. And then when we look at the other range of safety net programs that we support or that we're currently working on, when you look at things like the WIC program or the TANF program, those are really state administered as well. When you look at things like the Social Security Administration and the SSI program, it's more federal. Um, and so there is a division. But the reality is because we've chosen to focus on low-income families, it is 
unavoidable that a big part of our day-to-day operations and, and a big part of who we are as a company is helping people to navigate these public sector services and working with the public servants who have operated these programs for years and have you know, poured so much into the positive funding and operations of the programs that, that that's the opportunity for us, that we see it as you know, the difference between Propel and a different fintech who might be serving a different consumer is that for the consumer that we serve, we think it's impossible to serve Americans who earn under 40K per year in a comprehensive financial solution without deeply understanding how the safety net works in their finances, without building products that actually help them to navigate those safety net services and integrate them into their financial lives. And then so working with government's a big part of, of what we do, and it always has been. The thing that I always go back to here is that we share a lot of the same goals as the government programs that, you know, programs like the food stamp program and so on, that the administrators and the policymakers behind those programs really do want to help families make it through the month. They want to help families have the ability to choose what food they purchase on behalf of their family. And they want families to have the space to be able to take steps forward in their financial life. Now, I think there are always challenges when it comes to bureaucracy and the administration of the program, sort of the the nuts and bolts around the interfaces and check your balance and so on. But by and large, the spirit and the intent of the program is something that we deeply support. And so because of that alignment, we're able to have these really productive partnerships with people at the state and federal level. And that's uh, you know what I'm really excited about pursuing into the future as well. Do money, does money ever change hands between you and state governments? Currently, no. Um, we don't sell anything to state governments. We work with state governments and have really productive, positive partnerships, but they're not financial ones. We're helping states to distribute information about programs as one example. So when states have a bulletin that they want SNAP participants in their state to know about, we are one of the sources that they publish it through, but we do that totally free of charge. And could anyone integrate with the APIs that you're writing on top of? Yes. So the way that we operate is similar to in the financial services industry, companies like Plaid and others who aggregate financial balances to show it on behalf of people, that by helping consumers to get their own information, that we're able to build the product that we do, uh, where EBT balance is one of the many features inside the app. And so yes, we are operating in an industry where anyone who wants to help consumers to access their EBT information, if they get the consent of the consumer and if they work with state governments in the right way, they absolutely can. Yeah, I think there's something really interesting about being a market leader as you've been. You've helped open that up and in some ways make it easier for competition, although I don't know how much of that we've seen so far. Yeah, I would love competition in the sense that, you know, not necessarily companies copying us per se, but I would love more organizations to be focused on the space. I think the the set of financial challenges faced by very low income Americans. Now we're not, this is a little bit distinct from the space of people who earn, let's say between 40 and 70K per year. And there are very clear financial needs that those families have as well. But we're really focused on families who earn under 40K per year and that their financial needs, I think, despite the surge in FinTech, despite the surge in venture capital funding for FinTech, still are vastly underserved. And so I, I would love for more entrepreneurs to think about those problems, to think about the unique financial solutions that you know are a great fit for someone who's going on and off of public benefits and thinking about patching together various types of funding to make it through the month every month, that there's more than enough space for a number of major successes in that industry. And so would love to see more companies. Any advice for founders out there who are thinking about that space? Start from a clear consumer pain point. Start from talking to people who are navigating those challenges in their day-to-day lives, gain as much empathy as you can for their experiences if you don't have that personal experience yourself. And the, the, the second best thing you can do is to talk to people and try to gain a lot of empathy for what they're going through on a day-to-day basis um, and use that as the basis, right? Use that as opposed to an industry report or an economic finding or a market opportunity and start instead start from 
a real pain point that humans feel. And when you left Facebook to go to Blue Ridge Labs, that's the process that you used yourself, correct? Yeah, that's right. And how did you find your way to Blue Ridge? Did you know you were going when you left Facebook? No. As you mentioned, I was a product manager at Facebook where I led the Facebook groups team. Before that, I was a product manager at LinkedIn. But before all that, I was a kid who grew up in a household that had its share of financial challenges. I had a happy childhood and uh, my my parents did an incredible job, but we just grew up in sort of a financially rocky household where, you know, there were times where money was was uh, super tight. I went to Stanford on a financial needs scholarship and happened to be there at a time when everyone was getting into tech and that was the industry that was really booming. And so landed at these cushy jobs at LinkedIn and Facebook straight out of college. But I never lost this feeling that people in tech tended to solve the problems they understand and the problems that they understood were generally the problems of middle to higher income folks, because that's the demographic of most of the people who work in tech and certainly most of the people who fund uh, technology companies. And so I carried that thesis with me that like, hey, lower income Americans are underserved. You know, people like my parents when I was growing up, no one's building technology for them. No one's thinking about them when starting a tech company. But I didn't know what to do with that insight. I just sort of just held it for years as I was building stuff on Facebook. I happened across Blue Ridge Labs I think just totally by luck in the summer of 2014, it was the first ever fellowship program that Blue Ridge Labs was running. And I think it was uh, something like uh, within three weeks of having the first conversation with them, I moved from San Francisco to Brooklyn to start the first cohort of the program. And it was one of the best decisions that I've ever made, because even though it felt a little extreme at the time, it put me on the path to be able to utilize that insight that I had about tech underserving uh, lower income populations and, and really be able to explore it uh, more fully. Wow, that is decisive. Move across country after three weeks of chatting with them for the first time they ever ran the cohort. Well, wow, congratulations. Yeah. And look, I think uh, now is a good moment for me to like count my privileges and like the fact that I was able to take a risk like that, right? I was in my... In, in my mid 20s, didn't have major financial obligations, didn't have children or a partner that I needed to support. Like that is a lot of privilege and a lot of opportunity to take a financial risk like that, that I know that not everyone can. So I was very fortunate that it just so happened. I think a lot of, you know, startup and career success actually comes down to luck and, and you know, being there for the right timing of things. And then for me, that just happened to be the right timing that I was in a phase of my career in my life where I was looking to take a risk, looking to try something very, very new and the perfect opportunity to get in front of me. When you think back to that moment of becoming a founder and choosing this problem, do you think it's important that you underestimate the complexity and how hard it will be? Oh, absolutely. I think, I forget if it was Paul Graham or someone else who writes about like, you know, why is it that so many successful founders are in their 20s and 30s? And is it just because like young people have more energy or is it because actually it's because young people are naive and they don't know what they're getting themselves into and they don't know how hard it's going to be. Um, but it takes that amount of naivete to be able to undertake such a massive task. Um, I really do empathize, like I, I kind of believe in that, um, that if you had told me up front how much work it was going to be, how difficult it was going to be, how many years it was going to take to like raise our first VC funding, all the different challenges and emotional setbacks that you run into being a founder, I'm not sure that I would have done it. And it's like a lot to opt into. But at the end of the day, I think it's it's kind of that that like optimism and blindness and attitude, like kind of being able to overlook the obstacles in your way are necessary in order to build something that's really new and, and, and really big. Yes, I think I remember the essay you're talking about. It talks about the strengths of poverty and naivete yeah. um, and how they can be helpful for a founder. On the other hand, we had 
colleague of author of Super Founders on a previous episode, and he talks about how some of the understanding about the age of founders may be off according to his data in terms of being older than expected for unicorn founders. Although there certainly are plenty of young, successful founders, as you point out. Yeah, I certainly don't have any strong beliefs that you've got to be a certain age to be a successful founder or successful at, at, at any particular thing. Uh, but I do think having some like irrational belief that you can succeed where others haven't or that you can overcome big institutional challenges is necessary to be a successful founder. And so regardless of your age or your experience level, if you've got that, I think that's a key ingredient. What else should founders be working on in order to be successful? Two things here. The first is that when aspiring entrepreneurs ask me like, hey, what's the next career step that I should take to get ready to start a company? My advice is always, there's not really a career step you can take that'll get you ready for starting a company. You should just start a company. And it, it's going to be painful. You're going to mess a lot of things up just like I did. But that the fastest and best way to learn a lot of those things is through trying them yourself. And that the experience of founding a company is unlike any other experience, including experiences that are like, you know, nominally, like I'm in, I'm uh, starting a new team inside of a big company or something. These are like, quote unquote, entrepreneurial experiences. I don't actually think generally have that much to do with the actual process of entrepreneurship. And that like, look, if, if you're, if you're very clear that your personal goal is to start a company, the best way to learn that, to do that is by starting a company. I, I will say that there's sort of an adjacent question of like, how do you find the idea of what your company ought to work on? To which the answer I would say is like, find a non-obvious insight. And a non-obvious insight usually comes from being deep in some field, right? It's pretty unlikely that you would read a book about an industry that you never worked in before and suddenly have an insight that can allow you to be successful. That oftentimes it comes from you know, spending several years working on an industry and realizing there's some deep problem in it that others don't see, or there's an adjacent thing where like you've gained some skill set and you believe you can apply that skill set to a different industry. I put Propel in that latter camp of like, I did gain some skills in software development and in product management, thinking about how to build good consumer software at companies like LinkedIn and Facebook. And so that's sort of the mindset, and the mentality that I took into what about applying those practices to the government sector, to safety net services, to products for low-income families? And so developing some deep insight and some opinionated point of view about something, I, I think it's, it's also quite important. Thank you for sharing that. You've been very successful in terms of raising VC, building a company, reaching millions of customers. You also mentioned you made a lot of mistakes at the beginning. Are there any you're willing to share? <laughs> Sure. I mean, there, there's a long list of mistakes because as I mentioned before, I think the best way to learn as a founder is by trying your hardest and having good intentions and probably getting some stuff wrong. And I've certainly gotten my share of things wrong. Here's one of them. I started the company with two co-founders. You know, the three of us incorporated, propelled together and, and started off on the path of the company. They both left the company within four months of its incorporation. And it's because we didn't have any money. We were not making a lot of progress. We couldn't raise funding from investors in the early stages of the company. We ended up running a Kickstarter that raised $12,000 that helped us to pay for rent for a few months. But in New York City, that doesn't go that far. And so they made the perfectly understandable decision of like leaving because they needed to take a job that could pay them a real paycheck. And the mistake that I made among many during that time was being surprised by that, that we like didn't have a frank conversation about what are your personal financial needs and how does that intersect with what we're trying to build in this company and what are what the reality is for how long it's going to take for this company to find funding. And so I was I was shocked when I had that conversation with each of them separately about them leaving the company because it just wasn't feasible for them to not take a salary and work at a startup that didn't have benefits and so on. And so, you know, I was 
really fortunate. And again, coming from a place of privilege that I had personal savings from working at tech companies previously and so was able to not take a salary for the first few years of the company. But that was a hard, hard learned lesson. So the lesson there is to make sure to have those kinds of conversations with your co-founders. Yeah, the lesson is to like know what you're getting yourself into. Uh, from a financial standpoint, because that's like, you know, you don't want to mess around, especially if you, if there are others who rely on you that's starting a company, just like make sure you've thought it through uh, what it means in terms of your ability to get paid in the near term, your ability to pay your bills and your rent, support your family and so on, if that's, if that's a need that you have. Um, and to have those frank conversations with co-founders, the people that you're going to start the journey with. The reality is it's going to be rocky. You might have a plan to get funding right away. You might have investors who verbally told you that they'll fund you, but like know that those things may or may not come through. And that I think the strongest co-founder relationships are ones where you're really able to discuss anything. You're not holding things back from each other. And if you can get to that point around personal finances as well, it's tough because personal finance is like a deeply emotional topic in the United States. And it's one that people, even friends, don't openly discuss. I think it's something you kind of have to broach with your co-founders in order to have a productive relationship in the early, early stages. Yes. I'm a big fan of having all kinds of conversations about how will you resolve conflict? How will you know it's time to stop working on the company? How will you know that, um, it's time for one of you to leave the company, et cetera. Like ask all the hard questions because I think you'll be in better shape. And it sounds like you agree. Yeah, I absolutely agree because the alternative is stumbling across those hard questions when you don't have time and you haven't built the mutual understanding of how you'll navigate that question, which just creates really painful situations. Now, if we could talk about your investors a little bit more in your mission, your mission orientation I imagine it helps you attract employees. You've said it attracted some investors, although you have a variety of investors, including more traditional VCs. How does your mission focus help or hurt you with those more traditional investors? So we have really fantastic investors like Andreessen Horowitz, Kleiner Perkins, and Nika Partners as some of the major investors in the company. And they believe in our mission. I mean, they're invested in the company. They're on the board because they fundamentally are enthusiastic about Propel's mission and our ability to execute against it. But uh, make uh, no mistake, they're invested in Propel because they want to see returns. They're investors, they have LPs, they've got obligations for funds. They're invested in Propel because they believe in both the mission and the business opportunity. And so I think that's the alignment that I look for when we take on uh, new investors, is that actually I think it's a positive thing for us to have investors that are pushing us to be successful in our business, that we want to be held to the same standards as the rest of their portfolio companies at major consumer firms like Andreessen Horowitz and Hunter Perkins, right? We don't want a discount or a concession just because we're mission focused. In fact, we want to continue to be held at a high standard because I think that's what you know makes us strong operators. That's what encourage us to, in, encourages us to keep growing. And that's what encourages us to ultimately achieve our mission. And now I think it's my job to make sure that the way that we are pushed and the way that we grow um, is aligned to our mission, that we don't want to grow in a way that's misaligned by making revenue that hurts our users in some way or that is just fundamentally misaligned. But that is, that's ultimately the way that I want things to, to be set up. Now, we also do have investors who invested at least in, in part because of our social mission. So folks like the Financial Health Network and Flourish are also really incredibly important partners of ours. You know, having investors that are sort of see the, the the profit side of things, but also the mission side of things and help us navigate some of the challenges that inevitably emerge there. They've just been incredibly helpful partners. Well, thanks for sharing that. As a final question here, I'd like to pass you the magic wand. And if you had a magic wand, aside from user experience, how should the safety net evolve? Well, I'll 
start off with the low hanging fruit, which is past the child tax credit. Um, the child tax credit was authorized for six months of monthly payments in 2021, where Parents received between $250 and $300 per child under the age of 18, and that it was income capped, but only I think the income limit was something like $170,000. So most families in the United States received this monthly payment, and it made just such a huge difference for the families that we serve. We saw lower rates of housing insecurity, food insecurity. We saw more people who were able to pay their bills on time. We saw more people who were able to provide for their kids and offered you know, statements about how less stressful things were. And unfortunately, the child tax credit is in sort of policy limbo right now where it hasn't been passed. It was part of the Build Back Better Act that hasn't passed. And so I think that is, I think, potentially a revolutionary uh, a revolutionary step in the safety net for parents and children in this country. Uh, it's not so different from the way that a lot of European countries fund, you know, children and try to make parenthood a little bit easier it is the kind of step that I think would make such a huge difference families here. One of the things I think is so interesting about it is that you did not have to apply. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there are lots of things the child tax credit got right when you look at it from an administrative burden standpoint. And one of them, to your point, is that you didn't have to go through some onerous application process where you attested that you were working X number of hours or that you had, you know, uh, Y and Z other characteristics about your family, that it was based on your tax return. And so if you filed your taxes in the last few years, you would just automatically get that. Now, the challenge there is that that's how it worked for the majority of middle to higher income families is that they were able to just consistently get the payment on a monthly basis. For a lot of low income families who didn't file their taxes because they didn't have a tax obligation in the last few years, they did have to go through a process to apply. And for families who filed but changed their bank account since they filed, they had to go through a process to identify what their new bank account was to get that payment deposited or else they would receive a paper check in the mail and we all know how long that might take. And so the unfortunate reality of the child tax credit is that it did place more of an administrative burden on lower income families. Now, that is to some extent inevitable because the IRS had to figure out how to pay those families. But I do think that there, you know, that has been sort of our focus is like, let's look at the way that a family that hasn't filed taxes would then be able to receive the child uh, tax credit. Or let's look at how a family that changed their bank account over the last year would be able to tell IRS that that happened and make sure the payment came on time to their new bank account. Those are the types of things that we were really excited to partner with the White House, Treasury, and IRS on over the last year. And is, is one of the roles that we hope to play at Propel is really highlighting these safety net issues as they affect the uh, low-income families. As you're building the financial services company for the low-income demographic, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player, and please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.